Today is our seventh study on David series, King's Tragedies, and I want to reflect today's story with the lens of a dysfunctional family. David's tragedy was not just individual, but communal. It affected his family more than any other people. Yes, David bitterly repented like Psalm 51, but his sin made a reverberating impact on his family. Sin affects family. Sin is the most awful thing because it destroys the most precious God's gift to us, family. That's the overall biblical narrative. From the first family in Genesis to the families of Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, sin damages and destroys families. So biblical sin story is inseparable from sad family story. And I don't know about you, but actually I find that a relief because I'm also from dysfunctional family. You know, Sue Taylor Crafton, uh, American novelist, she's known for ABC, you know, detective novels, once said, people talk about dysfunctional family and I never seen any other kind family. And Mary Carr, uh, American poet, poetically, she said, dysfunctional family is there any family with more than one person in it? So once again, I'm very comforted. And then uh, Robert Barron, Bishop, uh, uh, you know, Robert Barron, Roman Catholic bishop, said human race is a one big dysfunctional family. And then uh, popular singer Carney Wilson said, we all come from dysfunctional families, and these days, I guess, that's a pretty normal well, not just these days, in the past, ever since sin came, dysfunctional family became a new normal. In our seventh study of David's tragedy, I want to reflect on David and his dysfunctional family. And there is a one important clarification. We must remember God loves us no matter what. And God even uses dysfunctional people. You know, for instance, touching our heart with a David Psalm 51, God taught us the true meaning of repentance and confession. But that does not mean dysfunctional relationship and disobedience are okay or just part of being a fallen human beings. We don't have to be dysfunctional to be used by God. That's what I'm trying to say. And God can use dedicated, faithful people far more than any other people. Of course, God uses repentant people. Now, Bible gives us usually long details about this dysfunctionality of David's family. And once again, it is for our own good. Because Romans 15.4 said, For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement that they provide, we might have a hope. So reason there's a long story about dysfunctionality of David's family was written, so you and I will learn from that, and we become wiser, and we will make our family far more faithful and functional. So as we reflect the ingredient of David's dysfunctional family, ingredient of David's dysfunctional family, let us examine our relationship with each other at our home and also our house church families. First ingredient of a dysfunctional family is a lack of a moral leadership. 
lack of a moral leadership, which comes from a bad example. That's what we saw in the tragic fall of David. You know, he took another man's wife into bedroom and impregnated her, and he made her husband be killed in the bad military operation. David's bad example of a sexual sin was repeated by his firstborn son, Amnon, who raped his half-sister, Tamar. Last week, we saw David's reaction to his son's horrendous evil. And so if you look at the Second Samuel chapter 13, verse 21, it says that when King David heard all this, he was furious. David was upset, but he didn't speak up. He was angry, but silent. Why? Because he lost moral leadership. You know, imagine conversation between David and Amnon. You know, David with, a, you know, with the emotions, how, how could you do such a heinous things to your own sister? And Amnon, you know, very cynical response. Well, that, at least I didn't kill somebody, innocent. David's sin took away the moral leadership as a head of the family. And here I want us to pause and know one thing for sure. What is the most important role of a parent in every family? What is the most important role for parents in every family? What do you think are the most important responsibilities of a parents to their children? You know, just for fun, yesterday I go, I mean, you know, this week I Googled to see what Americans think about the most important responsibility, parental responsibility to children, and this is what I found in the Google, in the first page. To protect your child from harm, to provide your child with food, clothing, and shelter, to financially support your child, to provide a safety, supervision, and control, to provide a medical care, to provide an education. David provided all of these needs for his children probably better than most of us because he's a king. While David met material needs and comfort of his children, he missed the most important parental responsibility. That is a moral responsibility. Yes, most important blessing parents can endow on their children is a moral health and strength. You know, most Americans, especially many of us, like a second, third generation Asian-American immigrant. You know, we think the material blessings and uh, financial resources are the greatest gift that we can pass on to our children. I want to tell you, moral blessings are far greater and better than any material blessings. So let me illustrate this truth with the two representative families. Do you have a picture of our first family? This is a family about Joseph Kennedy, a successful second-generation Irish-American who became a very wealthy. He was served as a chairman of SEC, you know, Security Exchange Commission, and also became even an ambassador of America to Great Britain. And then he had overachieving children. Do you see some of their young faces there? JFK, President of the United States. Robert Kennedy, the, you know, sort of a, a white suit kid standing there. Attorney General. Ted Kennedy, the, the boy sitting on his lap, a.k.a., the, uh, you know, he actually, senator from long time, senator from the Massachusetts, a.k.a. the liberal lion. You know. Americans love the Kennedys. 
as if they are our own royalties. And the Americans felt bad about their tragedies. And the people talking about Kennedy curse because they had so many, uncannily so many unnatural premature tragic deaths to political assassination, two you know, war-related deaths, one mental institution, four airplane deaths, three drug overdoses, and two suicides. Recently, I, I saw a Kennedy curse, a documentary, and guess what? The director said the real curse of Kennedy or Kennedy curse was actually the man in the center, Joseph Kennedy, his womanizing and flandering you know, lifestyle that totally set a wrong example to his children. As we know, JFK, Robert Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, they were sexual predators. They were horrendous sexual predators. They far exceeded any, you know, the, the, the what is a political, you know, sexual, you know, uh, scandals of today. And uh, so outwardly, they have a facade of a success, prestige, power, and the glamour. But truly, they are rotten, promiscuous. And you know, worst of all, they are hypocritical religious, Roman Catholic. You know, Joseph Kennedy has many girlfriends. One of them is uh, uh, Gloria Swanson, a well-known Hollywood actress in a long time. And uh, Hollywood, you know, Gloria Swanson wondered how could Joseph Kennedy, who went to the uh, mass, you know, Catholic worship every Sunday and then participated in the confession rite, could be unfaithful husband to Rose. Actually, they had a secret agreement. As long as I don't, I don't embarrass you in public, I can do whatever I want. And then Gloria Swanson, her, she actually, you know, her conclusion was, Joseph Kennedy used the religion, especially the Roman Catholic confession rite, to clean his conscience like a, like a plate to clean up, and you can put a new sin or new woman on it every week. Now, that's the one example. Let me show you another example. Do you have the picture? Yes. The man you are looking at, a bit, you know, next to Hillary Clinton, is Audrey and Bonner Rappaport. He's Texan. He's born in San Antonio in 1970, 1917, after his father, David, immigrated from Russia. David Rappaport was a Jewish communist and was exiled by fellow Russian communists after the power struggle. Did you know that a lot of Jewish people and Russian Jews, they were communists? Because the uh, idea of a communism sounds very prophetic, you know, sort of a very no class, you know, rich and no more rich and poor. Everybody kind of share life together kind of thing. So a lot of, you know, Jewish people were communists. Only when communists get the power, they're kicked out. I met, actually, Bonnard, uh, Bonnard Rappaport uh, in Baylor when I took the, uh, my doctoral sem seminar in the Jewish philosophy, and he came as, as a guest speaker. So Bonnard Rappaport, Rappaport told us his story. He grew up in a poor neighborhood of San Antonio, but his house was always crowded with the poor Mexicans and blacks and the white people and whoever. And his father never gave up communism. He practiced communism in his own way. In the house. In their dining room, they have an open jaw. 
And whoever has extra money, they put the money in that jar. And whoever had a need, they can take it out without asking. He grew up seeing people helping each other in the family, regardless of uh, you know, social class, whatever, race, and everything. He went to UT Austin. During the college, he got a part-time job as a cashier and eventually manager of a pawn shop. And he was so good at it, his uh, you know, owner actually said, hey, Bonner, I'm going to open up the new store, and I'm, I'm going to make you a partner. If you manage it well, we will split the uh, you know, profit in half. And once David Rappaport heard that, he called his son and told him that either you take that offer or change the last name. No son of mine will make money off the poor people's back. Choose. So obviously, he didn't get the job. Bana Rappaport grew up poor, but moral, ethical family. You know what happened? He became a multimillionaire. He was a founder of American Income Life, you know, uh, life Insurance Company. And not only that, he became a, one of the most generous, according to Forbes, the 40 most generous philanthropists in America. And uh, he served you know, UT as the, uh, the president of a regent. And uh, his, among many of his foundation, the Waco Foundation helped was the largest you know, a, a philanthropic organization for the education and the poor family like me back in Waco in grad school. So I, I actually received the uh, you know, benefit of this uh, Bonner Rappaport and his foundation. So let me tell you, it is a moral education and the leadership of his father, David Rappaport, that blessed not only his son, but all of us. Amen? You know, uh, Stephen Covey, author of a bestseller, Seven Habits of a Highly Effective People, he talks about leadership in this way. Leadership is a moral authority, not a formal authority. Leadership is a choice, not a position. Choice is to follow universal, timeless principle. By the way, Stephen Covey is a Mormon. So, you know, he could say Bible or Book of Mormon, but instead he said universal, timeless principle which will build the trust and respect from the entire organization and those with the formal authority alone will lose this trust and respect. So he was saying the true leader, whether at a home or a company, is a moral, they have a moral authority. So let me ask you, let me ask you, forest people, especially parents, are you moral leaders to your family and your children? Are you moral leaders? Are you providing moral education and leadership for your children more than material comfort? Children with a moral education are far more blessed than children of a multimillionaires, even children of kings. Even if you, can, you, you, know, you, you don't take them to fancy you know, vacation, you give them a moral education. You are blessing your children. Amen? Okay, I guess no, not much amen, huh? You know what? Our children, they don't do what we say. They do only what they see or what we show them. Don't, don't, don't ever forget that. Every time I see some of my daughter's anger, 
Where did you learn that? You know, I, I, you know, I just said, wow. Boy, your mother has definitely trouble. You know, that's, you know, and then, anyway. Second ingredient of dysfunctional family is a lack of discipline. You know, a lot of these ingredients are connected to each other. When King David heard all this, he was furious. Yet he didn't say anything. He didn't do anything to discipline. And, you know, his oldest son, Amnon. Why? Besides his own guilt and loss of moral leadership, there was another reason. So if you look at the uh, you know, Jewish uh, uh, Bible called the Septuagint, that is a Greek translation of a Jewish Hebrew Bible, Septuagint actually added a, a sentence to explain why David didn't discipline his son. So look at the you know, a Septuagint version of 2 Samuel 13, 21. King David heard all these things and was very angry, but he did not grieve the spirit of son Amnon because he loved him and he was firstborn. The dysfunction in David's home was about love. Amnon confused the lust for love. David confused the love for the appeasement and enablement. David's family didn't understand what true godly love was this all about. As a result, David didn't discipline Amnon. And as we will see in the next story, Amnon, what happened? When David failed to discipline him, somebody else disciplined him. That was his half-brother, Absalom. It was a lethally disciplined. Failure of a discipline, that means a failure to account the truth with love, always caused a bigger pain. Had a David disciplined the Amnon, Absalom's murder couldn't be prevented. Definitely, David, had a, David played a part in first murder in his family. For the topic of discipline, I think we need to remember that discipline is a divine. That's what Hebrew chapter 12, 5 and 6 says. Discipline is a divine because God disciplines us. Hebrew chapter 12 says, My son, do not make a light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose a heart when, you rebukes, when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God disciplines those he loves. Love without discipline is sentimental and even neglectful. Of course, discipline without love is also problematic. It's legalistic. It's nothing but a power game. But love and discipline, they always work together. You know, my favorite definition of a discipline comes from Mr. Roger. Do you guys remember Mr. Roger, Fred Roger? You know, Fred Roger's son called his father in the documentary that a second Christ. Man, if my children call me second Christ, I, I can go to heaven right there. But, you know, Mr. Roger, you know, the son called him a second Christ. Isn't that incredible? This is a, what Fred Rogers said. I think of a discipline as a continual everyday process of a helping a child learn self-discipline. How, do, how about that? Parents' discipline is a helping children to Self-discipline. Parenting is not just doing some kind of power game or, you know, exercising authority on them. No. We are helping them to make a right choice. 
That is a discipline. And Amy Chua, the author of you know, that Joy Luck Club, she actually attests to that truth. I see my upbringing as a success story. My, by disciplining me, my parents inculcated self-discipline. By restricting my choices as a child, they gave me so many choices in my life as an adult. Because of what they did then, I get to work I love now. So I want for us parents and all adults Discipline not only our children, but correct other children with love. Amen? We raise children together as a community of God or village of God. You know? And so don't let our children, when you, whenever you see anybody's child, act disrespectfully and, uh, you know, differently in the church than the way they behave at the school, stop them right there. Seriously. Sometimes I see kids doing things that they don't do at the school. In the school, they don't run. But in the church, they're like a wild animal. So like, you know, they go, they go, you know, climb the wall. They're off everything. You know what? Those kind of misbehavior is not about just, you know, behavioral problems, spiritual problems, because they're taking God's church for granted. Oh, nothing. They think church is, I mean, school is far more important than church. That's a wrong idea. We are, we, are, we, are, we are giving them. So, we discipline our children with love. Amen? So, don't make me only bad guy. We all should be bad guys together. Okay? Third ingredient of dysfunctional families is a denial of our problems and situation. Look at the verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 22 and 23. Absalom never said a word to Amnon, either good or bad but he hated Amnon because he disgraced his sister, Tarma. Two years later, when Amnon's ship shearers were at Baal Hazor near the border of Ephraim, he invited all the king's sons to come there. David didn't do anything about Amnon for two years. Since the father, the main you know, authority figure, did nothing, Absalom, the brother of Tama was not able to do anything. He just kept his cool appearance. But I bet whenever Absalom saw his depressed and disgraced, desolate sister Tama with her PTSD, PT, uh, PSD, I mean, PTSD as a you know, rape victim every day in his house, I bet his anger grew deeper and wilder every hour. You know, in the meantime, David was clueless and accepted the whole situation as a new normal. You know, David was denying the problem in his household. You know, he was hoping for the best. He probably rationalized that, oh, well, thank God, Tama found her shelter at her brother's you know, place. Oh, Absalom, well, he's a team player. He's a good kid. He's not only good looking, he's a really kind guy. He, re he respected Amnon the crown prince for the sake of a kingdom. David just took two years of a hidden, simmering anger for granted as a status quo. I think David confused his hope with the illusion. You know, the, you know uh, Voltaire, the French philosopher Voltaire once said this, 
One day everything will, will be well. That is our hope. But everything is fine today. That's our illusion. Okay? Hoping then everything will be good. I mean, the wishing everything will be good. That is a hope. That's good. That doesn't make everything is fine now. And David was confused. It's a hope with an illusion. David saw silence of Absalom as a peace. David wanted to claim the status quo of a temporary peace in his house as a permanent state. He didn't realize and then denied the danger of the status quo. You know, President Ronald Reagan one time talks about the status quo. Status quo is nothing but a Latin phrase for the mess we are in. You know, that's what the status quo is. On this note, you know, church is also very, very bad at this. We like to keep our status quo as a whatever, holy, you know, people of God. So one time I read a Texas Baptist pastor's uh, painful story about the denial culture in the church. So this pastor was a, a, a senior associate pastor of a large church in, in the in 1990s. And he was responsible of several other associate pastors, including a seminary and a student pastor. And one day he found out that student pastor was molesting one of the youth children for a whole year. So he called him to his office late in the evening at 11.30, and after one hour, he finally confessed everything. So he called his senior pastor, senior pastor right away. We need to meet ASAP. Next day in the morning, Six o'clock in the morning, they met together, confirmed it, and they had a, a DA in the congregation as a member, so they brought the DA right away and, uh, you know, handed it him. Now, at the moment, the pastor thought, we did it right, we did the right thing. But you know what happened to that church? What happened to the pastor? Let me just quote. We immediately turned, uh, so within 24 hours, we had a news cruise in our parking lot, and the picture of our church was on the front page of all magazines and newspapers in South Texas. I thought to myself, we did the right thing. We did what we need to do. We came out with it. But the mail started trickling in. I wasn't prepared for that. Senior pastor and I received the 30 to 50 letters each, and these letters were essentially hate mail. Majority of our letters expressed our disappointment and shame that we made public our church's dirty laundry. People told me, shame on you for coming out of this. You should, have kept it, you should have kept it quiet. There I got a glimpse at why Roman Catholic churches move pedophilic priests to another state. They have a tremendous amount of pressure from without and from within. And this is, uh, you know, the statement he made and they stuck to me. He said, people in the church, his church, would rather have an illusion of a health than health itself. People in the church would rather have an illusion of a health than health itself. How about us, Forrest? How about your house church? Do you really recognize and face the real problem in your family or in your house church? Or do you simply play the safe mode? You just say the you know, superficial things. You know, some of us are doing a house church you know, for more than a few months, 
and the growing, I hope we don't just growing and the usual routine, but we're growing deep. We can share more. Not just, you know, highs and lows and emotional, you know, just, you know, check up, but we can really share. You know, while David was denying the problem, Absalom was determined to bring justice in his own way. That's the fourth ingredient of dysfunctional family, which is a deception and manipulation. So look at the verse 24. Absalom went to the king and said, Your servant has assurers come. Will the king and his attendant please join me? Sheep shearing, you know, shearing is cutting all the, you know, fur, right? And uh, wool. It's, it's like a harvest time to a shepherd. So it's a time to celebrate and time to share your blessings with others. And now, today, Absalom is using as a pretext for his murder plan. And uh, uh, verse 25, David said, No, my son, all of us should not go. It would be too much burden to you. Although Absalom urged him, David still refused to go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon come with us. The king asked, Why should he go with you? But Absalom urged him, so he sent with, a, with, a, with a him, Absalom, Amnon, and the rest of the king's son. When Absalom invited Amnon, David felt uncomfortable. Because even though he's in denial, he knows. He's not ignorant. That Absalom and Amnon, they haven't talked to each other. They're not pals. So here is a David's, you know, dragging his feet. And Absalom's, you know, strong request, David finally conceded, and if our other three princess, princes go with, 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 with the whole group, he'll be okay. And Absalom said, that's fine. But do you notice it here? In this story, in this conversation, somehow Absalom knew David wouldn't show up. David would not come. And he calculated that David's rejection with uh, his urge to request for then the crown prince come in the place of king to bless my, you know, whatever, fiesta. Absalom correctly guessed that David's sort of lack of interest in their children or whatever, too busy. But most important thing in this story is this. David was deceived by who? Both Amnon and Absalom, Right? Amnon last week asked David to send Tamar, and he used the king's authority to isolate Tamar for his, you know, rape. And Absalom is using king's authority to invite Amnon to kill him. David was deceived by his two sons, whom every parent should, you know, trust, or he trusted. And every time David granted their wishes, he became an unintentional accomplice of their crimes of rape and murder. And we need to know this is not a coincidence. This is a judgment. Judgment of what? What David has done is not coming back to him. Remember, David deliberately deceived Uriah, who trusted David as king, and sent him to his death trap. What David has done is now about being done to him. Here we must remember, when family fail to face their situation and confront their problems honestly, guess what? Often families opt out easy way 
which is a manipulation and deception. And the end result of a manipulation and deception is this. One problem is solved. All problem is solved, but you got a bigger new problem. So the rapist was killed, but what happened? Murderer is now born. That's the you know, problem of a human manipulation and deception. So verse 34, Absalom fled. Fled to where? The east of Jordan, land of Kesher, where his mother came from. Now, let me share a story in my family, sort of testimony, to attest to this truth. And I didn't say this to anybody, I mean, in the church before. So, some of you heard that, uh, me saying that my father has a, a functional, uh, he has, he's a functional uh, schizophrenic. He has a schizophrenia, but functional. He's like a normal person, everything else, uh, you know, every, in every way except when it comes to my mother's fidelity. Anytime my father doesn't see my mother more than five minutes, he has a parallel universe where my mother went out and, you know, fooled around. That is a parallel universe. And we suffered a lot. It lasted several decades. Some of you heard, you know, my brother one time was so frustrated went to pastor to apologize because my father made a huge sin at the church. And the father, is, I mean, the pastor, instead of, you know, uh, comforting my, at least, you know, recognize, whatever, saying nice words, he kind of latched at my brother. That, yeah, what's wrong with your family? You know, they can came. And my father, my brother was so hurt by that statement that uh, on the way back driving, you know, to home in Caracas, Venezuela, he couldn't drive. He was so mad. He parked a car in the middle of the freeway, I mean, the side in the freeway. He walked. You don't walk sideways the freeway, especially at night. It's so dangerous. He almost felt like if somebody, some car come and kill me, well, I'll die. You know, he was so. When I heard that story, I was so mad. I couldn't do anything out here. So I, once again, this is another time that I threatened God. God, save my father, heal him, otherwise kill me. So I start fasting. After three days, I feel like God's going to kill me. So I stop fasting. And, I, you know, and this has happened many times. You know? Now, I didn't tell you why, where my father gets this kind of a, a schizophrenia. So just a little bit. My family immigrated to Argentina in 1977. My brother, following year, at the age of 21, he's a gifted businessman. He got a brilliant business idea. He found a partner. So he asked my father, lend me a $10,000. I'll make the family you know, set for good. Had we, my father you know, followed his advice and gave him a business opportunity, I mean, whatever he wanted to try, the people who took his idea became millionaires. But my father consulted other Korean people who discouraged him with a false information, didn't give to his, my brother. As a result, my brother saw other people who got his idea become a millionaire where he got nothing. As a result, my brother and my father, their relationship was totally broken. It was broken before, it got totally broken. And much more than that, my brother started drinking. Drinking heavily, playing hard, partying hard. And my mother cut in the middle, tried to reconcile these two men in the house, and it's not working. 
Being a non-Christian, my mother, she, she kind of got her own idea to solve this. That was to immigrate again to another country, start again. Problem, my father would not to go. Because we finally settled in Argentina. We have a you know, good, stable, good business, you know, shoe store, making good money. We're doing okay here. Why do we go another country called Venezuela? But my mother tried to create a space for my brother. So make a long story short, you know what? Three of us, my brother, me, my mother, we left Venezuela without, I mean, Argentina for Venezuela without telling my father. We lied to him, including my sister. So out of five, four knew my father didn't know. So can you imagine when he came to home after work, <laughs> three of them was gone. It was total betrayal to my father. You know, two years later, he joined us in, 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 in Venezuela. We all know it triggered that, that betrayal, manipulation, triggered the schizophrenia. So, you know, last time when my uh, last two years of my father's life, when they, you know, uh, moved back to, retired to Korea, you know what my mom did? Every single day, she apologized to my father. She apologized to my father. And then six months before he died, you know what my father began to say? Before he just listened, <laughs> but he began to say, it's not actually your fault, it's my fault. Had I been a little more open-minded, you shouldn't have lied to me. Had, we, had I listened to your business idea all from the beginning, from the get-go, we don't even have to immigrate to other countries. I'm the stupid husband. So, you know, guess what happened? They're apologizing each other. I know it's only possible because of uh, my mother became a Christian, and at the end, my father became a Christian. Now, Families, when they outmaneuver each other with the deceptions and manipulation, you might solve whatever problem you see, but you create a bigger problem. Let me go to the fifth and final ingredient of dysfunctional family. That is a lack of a clear communication. Lack of a communication. Look at the verse 37. Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Achimut, the king of Geshe. But King David mourned many days for his son, and after Absalom fled and went to Geshar, he stayed there for three years. And the king David longed to go to Absalom. He was consoled concerning Amnon's death. After King David mourned the death of his son Amnon for many days, he also felt sorry for Absalom because Absalom became a fugitive in foreign land, and David knows what's like the life of a fugitive, right? He was a fugitive. Do you guys remember, you know, a couple, three, three summers ago, we talked about that. He felt responsible for whole fiasco. So David probably blamed himself that had I disciplined Amnon, had I acted more wisely, I could have prevented the whole mess. I made an Absalom unnecessary murderer. So while David had remorse and yearning for Amnon, Absalom, someone else watched David's struggle and noticed that was a Joab, his commander. So chapter 14, verse 1. Joab, son of Zeruiah, knew that king's heart longed for Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa and has a wise woman brought from there. 
He said to her, pretend you are in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't use any cosmetic lotion. Act like a woman who has spent many days grieving for the dead. Then go to the king and speak this word to him. Joab put the word in her mouth. Why did Joab get himself involved in David's family affair without invitation? You know, biblical scholars think that Joab was a commander of David's army. As a military leader, he was worried about ex-prince Absalom living in the foreign country as a political exile because that could pose a potential political and military threat to the future stability of the kingdom. What if a king of Geshar, you know, Absalom's you know, maternal grandfather, uses this tragedy as an excuse to invade Israel or meddle in Israel's politics? And also, this was an opportune time for Joab because you remember Joab was a very opportunistic guy, right? Do you guys remember? For him to score a point for David as he's confident that I solved you and I helped your problem. So Joab despised a plan. And this plan was a very elaborate one. I'm not going to read a chapter 14. You read, okay? I hope you read a Bible, okay? So I, I, that's a homework. You read a chapter 14. So, you know, but the interesting thing is, is Joab, instead of telling, you know, King David directly to bring back the princess, you know, uh, uh, Absalom for the sake of a kingdom, you know, peacemaking and then you know, reconcile, Joab gave this hire, this uh, 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 old, wise woman, actress, and gave a strip, script. And script is this. I'm summarizing chapter 14. Tell the king that you have two sons. You're a widow and you have two sons. And somehow they got into argument and the one son killed the other one. And now the whole village wants to punish the remaining son for his murder of a brother. So all of a sudden she is on the verge of losing two sons. So plead the king to save me from this, you know, losing two sons. Now, Do you remember who used the story? Why did it, you know, uh, once again, Joab used this kind of uh, device, tactics? Do you guys remember somebody else used a story to convict the King David and change his mind? Do you remember? Who is that? Nathan in chapter 12. Do you guys remember Nathan's story? So what is Joab doing? Joab is imitating Nathan, prophet Nathan. And the one important thing is this. Nathan brought the God's truth and God's will, whereas Joab is fabricating. He's imitating the true peace and true reconciliation. And that's what happened. And so finally, David figured out that was a Joab. So verse 21, king said to Joab, the well, go and bring back the young man Absalom. Verse 23, Joab went to Geshur and brought the Absalom back to Jerusalem. But the king said, he must go to his own house. He must not see my face. So Joab went to his own house. I mean, Absalom went to his own house and did not see the face of king. Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. Dysfunctional families. This is my final point, and listen to me very carefully. Dysfunctional families, you know, they avoid the real conversation. They prefer superficial reconciliation and artificial relationship over genuine, honest, you know, relationships. You know, David never said, 
that let's talk about your killing of your brother Amnon. Let's talk about what happened to Tamar. Let's talk about your anger. Let's talk about the fact that you deceived to kill your brother. And also David could say, Absalom, I also, let me come clean because I messed up big time. Forgive me. It was my inaction that triggered the whole revenge. But David didn't say anything. He just brought the Absalom. And they said, okay, he's back in Israel. And then you just go home. Why? David was still avoiding tough conversation. Do you know how long David avoided? For two years. Verse 28, Absalom lived two years in Jerusalem without seeing the king's face. You know, Jerusalem is not a big city even today, and much less in the back then. It was probably a couple of, you know, square mile. So they lived in the same small city, and Absalom didn't see David. You know why? David was avoiding Absalom. I mean, you know, you can bump into each other by just walking, right? I bump into many of you in the Costco. You know, they can easily bump into each other, but David always avoided, you know, Absalom. David was still denying. He doesn't want to have a serious conversation. This inaction of David, do you know what happened? You know, create another huge time bomb, which later made a bigger explosion than all of the explosion, and that's what we'll look at in the coming weeks. Do you know when was the last time they really, you know, kind of talked? It took us seven years. Two years after the Thomas rape, David was silent. Three years, Absalom lived in the Kershaw. Came back, he lived in Jerusalem for two more years. And finally, in seventh year, they had a little talk. Now let me conclude. We live in the world full of Davids, Thomas, Amnons, and Absaloms. I think American families a lot look like Davids. We see children with the anger of Absalom, guilt of Amnon, shame of Tamar. You know, families in our culture struggle with the similar dysfunctions that we see in this text. So what do we do? What do we do? The only answer is the Christ and his cross. Only answer is the Christ and his cross. Jesus came to save us and our dysfunctional family. How do you know? He intentionally was born in dysfunctional family. Those of you taking a you know, Livingstone Bible study, how does the story of a New Testament story of Jesus begin in Gospel of Matthew? Matthew started the genealogy of Jesus. Why did he talk about genealogy of Jesus? To show Jesus was born troubled, dysfunctional, sinner's family like everybody else. And much more, Jesus went to the cross to save all the dysfunctional sinners. And you have to know this. What defines us before God is the cross of Christ. It's not your shame, your guilt, or your anger. I am defined by Christ and what he has done for me on the cross. And Christ took all my shame and guilt and anger and then, you know, 
pain to himself, and he gave his love and forgiveness and glory. So answer to this functional family is a Christ and the cross of Christ. Pray more than anything that your family members come to Christ. Pray more than anything. If you, re- you are the believer in your family, that you, God, fill your heart with his Christ's love so that you can forgive your family and love them and pray them. Because inhumanly, there's, David failed. Every family failed. Only Christ in us can make us true families of God. For us, I really pray that we are the de facto family. You know, I see you more than my own family. Other than my children. Actually, I see you more than my children. They are all gone. So, we are literally de facto family. It is my prayer. Through house church ministry, we go deep. We go vulnerable, real, you know, even shameful area, and open up and let the light of Christ, you know, flush in, and then really make us strong. Let's not be a superficial, artificial, you know, church. Let us be a real family of God. Amen? Let's pray.